Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, here with another very special guest. I'm so grateful I got some time to finally sit down and talk to Brent. We've been talking about doing this for a while. We were supposed to meet up at NAM, but uh, things got a little crazy and that didn't happen. So uh, it was really good to uh, to hang out with him for a while and really get to uh, talk about some great things. We talk about his work as a guitarist. We talk about his work as an orchestrator and also, uh, you know, working with uh, companies like Cirque du Soleil with Riverdance. Uh, absolutely great stuff. And also we talk about his hockey career which in and of itself has been pretty amazing. So a lot of great stuff coming your way in this interview. I'm sure that you will enjoy it as much as I did and uh, looking forward to bringing that on. But first, as always, what the hell's going on with me? I don't know. Uh, I've been working very hard on my mix for the new single that will be coming out here shortly. Uh, Really close to having it finalized. This song has been um, probably one of the most challenging ones that I've mixed so far. And uh, I'm getting very happy with the mix. There's a couple things that I'm still fine tuning, but very close. And then, of course, I'll move on to the mastering phase and uh, and then we'll we'll get it out there to the world. Uh, As soon as that is done, I will get back on board with the new album that I hope to have out uh, early to mid July. June is going to be a very busy month for that. Uh, but uh, it's coming along well. The the work I did, I did a little bit of a uh, rehearsal for laying some bass guitar down, and uh, that's that's uh, that was a lot of fun. Definitely looking forward to finishing those tracks and uh, getting that album out. I know that Kelly is working hard on the album art, so I'm very very anxious to see. I have not seen any of the preliminary designs yet, so uh, really looking forward to that. Should be fun. She always comes up with stuff that I just absolutely love. And uh, let's see what else. Well, we're still, well, we, I guess we kind of did some sort of soft open or something this past week. Um, I'm playing it safe. I'm just going to stay home and, and be home as much as I can. I'm not really ready to go out. I've seen what's happened in other places and uh, I'd rather just wait a little bit longer. And, you know, if I, uh, I don't really feel like I'm in danger myself. I feel like I've had an earlier version of this virus Uh, I don't know if that makes me immune to different mutations of it or what. I don't understand that much about how viruses and things work. But I do know that if, if on the off chance that I am still a carrier, even though I haven't really been out in a long time, um, when I do go out, I don't want to take that risk. So uh, I still maintain all the safety that I possibly can for myself and for everyone else. And uh, I think that's about the safest thing I can do. So we'll see what happens. I don't really understand the regulations of this soft opening. Um, I don't I don't get the idea of things like gyms and pools being opened when those are the things that bring, you know, why why maintain a six foot distance in a line if you're going to get in the same water with somebody else, even if it's well, we're only doing half capacity. I don't know that. That doesn't seem like there's a lot of intelligence behind that. And it seems like a lot of people feel the same way. But there's also a lot of people out there interacting and and taking advantage of those opportunities. So uh, we'll see. My advice is just, uh, you know, be smart, do what feels right to you. Don't let the fact that you felt, um, you know, uh, claustrophobic or that you just need to get out or whatever. Don't let that cloud your decision making. Seems like there are a lot of people doing that. So be careful, be smart to, uh, you know, not just for yourself, but for other people as well. So that's my little rant and I don't really do a lot of those, but I kind of felt the need to today because I'm, I'm just baffled. 
So uh, what else is going on? That's really about it. Uh, really looking forward to getting the new album out, uh, working on the novel. So I'm kind of jumping back and forth between a lot of things. I've got some great guests lined up uh, over the next few weeks for shows. So I'm looking forward to uh, doing those interviews as well. Really excited. It's uh, it's a good time for production. And uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy the things that I'm putting out there. So before we get to our interview, we have our first ever sponsor on the Haskin Cast podcast, a voice that might sound a little familiar to you. And then we will bring on Brent after these words from our sponsor. MJ&J Farms would like to invite you to experience the power of full spectrum CBD oil. MJ&J Farms sells high quality, organic, full spectrum CBD oil tincture. Our oil comes from high quality hemp plants grown in Northern Arizona. We're a small family farm, and we put our hearts into growing a quality product. We did everything by hand, planting, growing, harvesting, and milling. We were involved in every step of production, so we can guarantee the quality of our product. We chose to mix our extract with organic, cold-pressed hemp seed oil, grown and processed in Oregon. Once we had harvested our plants, we worked with local Arizona companies to create our CBD extract and then to turn that extract into our full-spectrum CBD oil tincture. Our product is 100% American-made. Visit our website, mjjfarms.com, to get more information on the benefits of full-spectrum CBD oil or to find out how you can speak with us directly to get all of your questions answered. MJ&J Farms. Quality from soil to oil. All right, ladies and gentlemen, magical episode 108. It is time to bring on my guest, one of my favorite people on the planet. Definitely somebody who really understands music and just being a damn good person and somebody that's just great to talk to, as you're about to find out. My friend Brent. Brent, how are you doing today? Ah, shucks. What an introduction, Scott. Thank you so much. It's all true. I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm good, thanks. You know, we've known each other a while now. Yeah, we're finally actually speaking. I'd I'd love to (laughs) get over to Vegas and see (laughs) you. Yeah, well, we're not that far. You're in L.A. and it's uh, it's a nice drive. And uh, they're supposed to be working on a bullet train now that'll get you here in an hour. How awesome would that be? Now, the question is, how long will it take you to get to the train? (laughs) Well, I'm in Woodland Hills and it usually takes about an hour and a half to get downtown. So, yeah, yeah, it's it. But it's actually I love it here. It's there's, there's such variety and. Uh, the demographics in different areas is so cool. You, you almost like have a bunch of different little cities in one. Well, the the general in L.A. area is a real culture fest. I mean, the, the time that I lived out there, I was amazed at how many just different uh, areas and different supporting stores and things that I saw. It's really a kind of a cultural mecca. Yeah, the first year I lived here, I basically would just get in my car every day and drive 20, 30 miles, just go to some area I'd never been to and discover all these amazing ethnic varieties of food and mm-hmm. uh yeah it's beautiful for that and nature too we have quite a bit of outdoor activities that are right off the city you know mountains and beaches obviously so it's 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 a really cool place yeah i can get that all on about a four mile street here as far as the culture part goes but uh we don't really like to go outside we're heading into that <laughs> time where the sun just says i hate you and no doubt about that. I, i'm gonna remind you all day long 
I do miss the LA weather. I will say that. Well, it's amazing. The air quality now because of the virus situation is unbelievable. Yeah, it's got to be weird. The air out here reminds me of when I was a teenager. It was like this. It's 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 really beautiful. Mm-hmm. How long have you lived there now? I've been in LA roughly seven years now. Okay, where were you before that? I grew up in San Diego, um, and uh, not raised there. I was born in Kentucky, of all places, and then moved to San Diego when I was real young. And I grew up and went to school there and everything. And uh, then I went back to Boston uh, for college. I was also lived in. Uh, Cleveland for a couple of years, where my ex-wife was from, Nashville for a couple of years, and over in Prague in uh, the Czech Republic. Wow. I played hockey, hockey over there for a while, so I was over there for a couple of years. Um, but uh, yeah, I love LA. I'm probably going to be home-based out here for the rest of my days. Yeah, that's how I feel about Vegas. It's nice to be in the place that you're going to stay or plan to stay. Yeah, the only thing that'll change is if I get enough money to go, you know, live on a beach in Thailand. That might be that might be in the work <laughs> in another ten years because that that is sort of my end game plan. Yeah, I am definitely a, a water person, so I can really appreciate that. I do miss uh, just taking a random day and going to like Newport Beach and walking up and down the beach, thinking about my projects or what I want to do next or how something's going to develop. It's there's really nothing like that, so I I can't blame you. Yeah, I'm, I'm literally about two miles from. Benga Canyon, so I can go through there oh, and pop nice. right out in Malibu in about five, 10 miles. So it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Oh, that's fantastic. So you are, I, I hate to say that you're primarily a guitar player because I really think of you as so much more than that, but musically that's your main instrument, but you also do a lot of orchestration work. So for the people uh, in the audience that aren't really familiar with the difference between a musician and an orchestrator, can you give me like a general idea of the differences between, I should say, a, a composer and an orchestrator? Uh, what would, how would you describe it? Well, it's in a broad scope of things. I, I basically think of orchestrating, which I enjoy the most, by the way, is coloring. Uh, we're basically painting a big canvas with lots of pastels and we're, we're taking the main themes and melodic aspects of a tune and the harmonic structures and then really branching those out with instrument combinations to create different timbres feels and it's a really endless amount of just like if you were a painter there's just so many combinations of colors you can use and strokes and textures and uh i really i really view it like that that i'm basically painting if you will with with uh, instruments yeah, that's a great way to explain it. And what I'm curious about, because you've done orchestration for some pretty big projects. I know you've done a lot with Cirque du Soleil. How much of a framework do you get to build on? It's it's It can be a mixed bag, um, especially we have so much great MIDI gear now available and composers are through composing in real time a lot with just their rigs. Uh, so I can get everything from a a real formal composer that's got incredible piano background that gives me basically a, a grand staff piano sketch where I have to basically branch out from that. And which are the fun ones, by the way, because those are the ones I get to really kind of have carte blanche and do what I want with. And I'm basically taking his main harmony and themes and then distributing those amongst the orchestra for the counter lines and the harmonic support and the colors. Uh, so that happens, you know, periodically, uh, but to me, honestly, the majority of things we get nowadays are big, massive MIDI files. Uh, I worked on an Elfin project um, a couple of years back, and there literally was one of the queues that had like 300 MIDI tracks. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and you basically had to take the, the first couple of days was literally just cleaning up the MIDI so I could even then start orchestrating. Right. So, And, and that's obviously the most um, the kind of work we get 
uh, in general these days because so many composers have that available to them from experienced composers to novice composers. And when I say novice, I don't mean any disrespect. They don't compose amazing stuff, but they don't really know what they're composing. They're, they're essentially have a, a big badass computer set up and in great libraries and they're, and they're putting on some amazing lines and things. Uh, in those situations, uh, I'm really responsible for cleaning it up and making it actually playable because uh, so much of what you can achieve with samples is actually not always playable. Yeah. And that's that's the thing. And was there a challenge where they might be using sounds that they're triggering through MIDI that you don't have and you might not hear properly? Uh, more times than not, it's things obviously that are out of range, mm -hmm. uh, techniques that maybe, you know, wind techniques or things that are going on for too long that a human being breathing cannot execute. Um, more times than not, even under those circumstances, we can still get about 90% of that down. Oh. Uh, so even if something on the surface seems unplayable, for example, let's say we have a wind line that's going on and there's no breast in it. Well, I can distribute that amongst two flute players, for example, instead of having one play it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so there are various you know avenues and ways to make pretty much anything work. Uh, sometimes we do get, uh, for example, somebody triggering a synth patch or a, a string patch, and it's they're hitting a chord with one note that they're playing on the keyboard. Right. And that's that's what they hear. They think that's actually coming from them, but it's not. It's actually the samples stacking a triad or something like that. We actually have to spend a lot of time, you know, transcribing and kind of <laughs> figuring out what their samples. So, in regards to your question about samples, that's sometimes does occur, which can be kind of frustrating because uh, we have to spend more time kind of transcribing the technology before we can actually get down to the pencil and paperwork of the, of the orchestration itself. Well, sure. And and when you're working with something that has that many tracks, let's let's dial that back by 90% and say you're working on something that has 30 tracks. Mm -hmm. Is it is it difficult to look at all those tracks and go, okay, I want to do my harmony this way, but is there any note that would conflict and, and give dissonance with another note on any of these 30 tracks? Well, it'd probably help if I if I just told you my general process, which is you know certainly not the same for everybody, but it, it's pretty much across the board. Is uh, I basically get everything in score order first, meaning that I'll put the winds at the top, mm -hmm. uh, the brass below that, uh, then any kind of tune percussion, percussion, and then strings at the bottom. Whether I'm working in a DAW or in Sibelius or something like that, so I basically have a representation of where all the tracks are and where they should be within their respective families. Uh, and then within that, I certainly go through and pick apart each um, family itself. So I usually go through the strings first, which is pretty standard for most orchestrators because that's, in essence, that's the body of what we hear. Sure. Uh, it supports pretty much everything, whether they're playing the whole time or not. They're the, they're the meat and potatoes of it. Uh, so I like to get that in order. And that's also going to represent all the, a lot of the main melody figures, counter lines, certainly the harmonic support. So then I check for any note discrepancies, any rhythmic flams, things along those lines uh, to get that all cleaned up. And then once I got that, then it's a matter of sort of uh, dialing in the brass, the winds and tune percussion, which there's no order for those necessarily because let's say if it's a military score, uh, the brass would be the next thing I deal with because that's going to be a first and foremost, very frontal uh, group in that style. Whereas it was maybe a romantic comedy winds might be the, the more prevalent thing to, to address next. So I'll usually go in order of, of sort of what the the actual cue or, or track is sort of requiring. 
if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. And if you're working on a John Williams piece, then it really doesn't matter because every instrument is just constantly doing something crazy. And <laughs> where do you start? With, yeah, with orchestrating, it's really funny, though. It's, it's If you think of it basically like a rock band, <laughs> you're going to have somebody playing the harmonic support, normally the keyboard player. You're going to have melodic players, and you're going to have rhythmic players. It really is just a larger extension of that. Mm -hmm. You know, we certainly have more instruments and more minutia, but conceptually, it's it's the same stuff. Yeah, and, and it's exciting because you really do get to uh, to shape and form someone else's idea, and uh, it, it, it's, I, it's probably very exciting for them, too, to have you do that and then to get this I've given you a kernel of an idea and you've popped the kernel and put it in all the sauces and spices and you go here and I eat this. And that's, that's gotta be a nervous, but really exciting thing I would imagine for them. Well, the, it's, that's why I love it because you could literally orchestrate one cue or piece four different ways and have it be dramatically completely different, mm -hmm. which is, which is the, that's what orchestration does. Uh, you know, to me uh, composing, I don't want to say it's easy, but I think it's pretty it's pretty procedural. Once you get pretty good at knowing how to write melodies, you know, you know, fundamental harmony structures, it's pretty easy to pump out at least something that's pretty darn musical right off the bat, even if I'm just sketching it on paper in theory. Yeah. But how many ways you can color that and build it and make it big or small or intimate. Uh, it's, it's, that's why I love orchestrating so much. It's, it's definitely what I'll be doing for the rest of my days. And if I honestly was to give myself a moniker, it would be, I'm an orchestrator. Um, uh, guitar is my instrument, of course, so they'll always be my love, but mm -hmm. my main hours are spent orchestrating has been that way now for boy, going on almost 15 years. Oh, that's awesome. I would imagine there has to be quite a discussion though, about the, the emotional content of the piece, uh, because you could be given a sketch, but that doesn't really tell you, uh, how it, how it really is meant to feel. So sure. do you have a, a good dialogue then with the composers about that? Well, that's, that's where it's like, you know, from playing in bands yourself and working with people, some people are very literal and clear about how they communicate, and other ones are very vague. Uh, certainly, um, being out in L.A. is great because there's just so many amazingly talented people out here and smart musical people that usually the conversations are pretty straight ahead. We, we already kind of know how each other think. We have similar backgrounds. So in many, in many lines, we don't really have to communicate too, too specifically because we already have a general idea of what's being presented in front of us. So if I do get a MIDI file from somebody or their sketch, I, I already generally know. But of course, we do want to sit down, spot through it, and have any criteria that they really want focused on, say, lead instruments or how, how they want me to build the strings or you know, how little brass, how much, things like that. Yeah, I'll generally get a, a curve, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in regards to how big or small or <laughs> how things should generally be distributed. Uh, I still will generally personally just orchestrate it to the best of my ability, let them have a first pass look at it and say, okay, I like this. I don't like this, but you know, can you scale this back and, and then go from there. Um, sometimes I get carte blanche and, and I'm able to do exactly what I want to do in my own personal way because they trust me to do, a, a good job for them mm -hmm. and that I'll, that I'll hope to do better than they would do on that. Other times, say for example, John Williams, he has orchestrators, but really the, he doesn't need them. He, his sketches, uh, I'll have to send you some sometime. His handwritten sketches are so complete mm -hmm. that the orchestration is already there. It's basically the, the, the orchestrator is essentially transferring that almost as being a, uh, 
an engraver or a copyist at that point. Yeah. Um, and so it really depends on the composer you're dealing with. Uh, in that it's, it's a mix, you know, if you're dealing with somebody that's incredibly articulate and incredibly experienced, they'll basically just tell you, hey, take this and don't change much. And other times you get somebody who's a novice and they'll say, hey, can you please help me out with this? Make it really happen. Mm-hmm. We do our best. <laughs> well, that that really kind of begs the question. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Joshua Note, who's an author, and we were talking about, uh, you know, as writers, when we work with editors, how much of our editor becomes the writer and how much of it is still our voice. How do you feel as an orchestrator almost giving yourself credit a credit as a composer because you really are doing the shaping of a lot of the pieces. Well, this, this is a real uh, catch 22 now, because in all honesty, I've orchestrated on some pretty nice big projects, but I haven't actually got credit for them. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. We are generally seen as sort of what's called enablers uh, in a lot of sense that we're behind the scenes. A lot of people don't know what we do and how valuable of input we have. Uh, there's been times where I've orchestrated on things where I've literally put 90% of the music, music on the page mm-hmm. out, of, out of the you know 100% we're hearing, but my name is not on it. Um, that's that's sort of one of the quandaries that I didn't know when I first got into town that was uh, very disappointing. I, I won't name any movies, but I worked on a couple large ones, and I was so excited because I was going, oh, my God, this is going to be a calling card to get me on the bigger projects and just mm-hmm. people to know me a little bit. Uh, and they said, no, you, you can't, you can't disclose this. You know, we don't want you to know people even knowing you exist on this project. Cause there's a lot of the money people. Um, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of people, um, there's a, what's called an all in deal for the composer. Mm-hmm. And what he does is the studio basically hires him for the gig. They pay him a mass sum and then he subcontracts everybody else under that. And many times the money guys, don't like seeing additional names under that composer's name because they are, they, they can view that naively as if all oh, this guy doesn't really know what he's doing. He's having to hire all these other people to make up for his program. So, so a lot of times it's a more of a political thing where we're basically in the shadows uh, respectfully for the composer to obviously make his stuff come to life. And also there's incredible deadlines yeah. um, that just, you know, sometimes eight orchestrators have to get something going and you have it done in three weeks you know, three hours worth of music, which is just ridiculous. I can empathize with that because I've worked under some of those deadlines before. And and it really, you can't do it without a team. Oh, yeah. I wish that there was some sort of uh, like an IMDB for musicians where you could see those kind of credits because nobody does it on their own. Oh, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, there's there's been so many in my first couple of years here. uh, Some of the projects I worked on that, really would have propelled me a lot more a lot sooner um had i been able to disclose them yeah and, and use them as a card well i remember uh, it must have been sometime last year where cd baby had sent out a thing asking if people wanted to have the ability to give additional credits in the uh it, it, so that when you have your uh, album come out or your single come out uh you could have you you could have a, a co-writer an orchestrator a copyist like all that stuff and and it never happened, and at least it hasn't yet. And I I was kind of saddened by that because I have seen a lot of movies in the end credits will start adding little sections about the music team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really it's it's a pretty sad state of affairs about music and culture in this country. <laughs> you yeah. sound like a grumpy old man, but it's just it's you, you see it across the board. 
you know, how little we get paid in residuals for things and much less even having our name on it. So it's, it's, it, we do it for the love of it. That's honestly why I do it. I just love music. It, it kind of chose me is the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. And I, it, the end product is, is what's worth it. So if I work on a session and I get to hear something of mine played by a hundred musicians, that, that is pretty phenomenal. <laughs> oh, for sure. Do you, uh, do you get to go to the sessions sometimes? Yeah. In general, the, the orchestrators will generally be there at least, you know, especially if there's just a couple of them, we will definitely be there. Um, because, you know, sometimes we have to make little changes on the fly. Uh, and we're also responsible for another set of ears mm-hmm. uh, so that we hear things that are maybe being missed because it's great when you have four or five people in the booth because um, even with the most educated ears, you're concentrating looking at scores as things go by. People are adjusting levels. So not everybody can catch every little flam or small little minute thing that happens or, or doesn't happen that should. Uh, and we have to stop those, especially if you've got a hundred musicians, you're looking at, you know, five figures going by an hour and adjustments have to be made very quickly. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, what a lot of people don't know, and I'm pretty sure I've talked about it on the show before, but a lot of people don't know that if there is a piano in the room that the orchestra is recording in, even if there's no piano on the score, you have to pay a piano tuner to come in and tune the piano. Oh yeah. You know, cause otherwise the, if it's out of tune that the strings are going to vibrate if there's a piano in the room. Sure, sure. Um, I'm curious then, if you're working on, say, a film score or maybe even uh, a Cirque du Soleil piece, do you get any uh, of the video to match it up to so that you're hitting the emotion properly or the timing properly? Well, most of my stuff that I've done with Cirque du Soleil has been actually a little bit different. It's been more almost what I would say like a jazz arranger Hmm. uh, approach where it's a smaller ensemble. It's generally anywhere from nine to about 13 musicians. Uh, for the shows in general. And most of my adjustments for them is more in terms of a lot of times they decide that they want to edit um, scenes, if you will, because they realize that they do test shows and say the audience is a little bored in one section, they might want to cut one of the segments down a little bit. And there's a lot of odd time stuff and, and really interesting little quirks and changes so we have to kind of generally go in there and reposition all the material most of the material that i get with them is honestly pretty much already written uh in a sense i'm basically cutting and pasting and making sure that things adjust to the new parameters rhythmically like an editor essentially mm-hmm. almost like almost like a music editor but obviously i have to do it in notated form yeah that makes sense and i know that uh at least the last time that i had talked to somebody in, in behind the scenes is they were just switching everything over to ableton live to run the shows yeah. and certainly if they're triggering everything off of uh midi or or specific uh clips of audio for the the stuff that isn't being played live it really is easy for them to switch around on the fly and say you know what we're we're going to do this song differently starting tomorrow we're going to try a different arrangement but without you setting it up properly, they wouldn't be able to do that so easily. And, and the shows vary quite a bit, too. I mean, there'll be shows like Lucia that's more ethnic, Latino show that's really more, dare I say, like Argentinian tango bass, which is more acoustic instrument oriented. Mm-hmm. And then a show like um, Volta, which is more street rap. And so that's where some, sometimes the technology will play a little bit more of a role in a show like Volta because they're going to be triggering more sample based things, sure. drum machines along with live players, but other ones will be very intimate where it'll be basically pretty much, you know, acoustic musicians more or less. 
Right. It is always good to have live players. It's weird to go to a show like Mystere here at Treasure Island where the musicians are all in full view. And then you go to a show like Ka where there's only a couple of times that they come out onto the stage and perform and they're in a room, you know, three floors down. Uh, I personally, I like the idea of having the musicians, but if it's a more theatrical show where it's uh, more like a, a live movie, then the musicians are probably more of a distraction. Sure. Well, yeah, I can give you an example of that. It's like when I worked with Riverdance, most of the times the musicians were, were backstage mm-hmm. or off to the side because obviously the troupe, respectively so, has to be up first and foremost and there'd be you know, anywhere from a dozen to 20 dancers on the stage at a time. So there's just not enough room. And, and like you said, it would be a visual distraction for a lot of people, I think. Well, and I have to wonder if Riverdance isn't a little bit like NASCAR. Like, I think the reason a lot of people watch Indy 500 or different NASCAR races is because they're looking for the crash. They don't really care about watching somebody drive around in a circle 500 times. They want the the violence. They want the mistakes. And I kind of have to wonder if there isn't a little bit of that for people that enjoy Riverdance. Well, I, I would assume that's just cynical people in general. But, I, you know, I'm certainly not one of those most most every show that I was a part of or was around it, that really, I didn't sense that in the atmosphere. Good. Uh, that, that's something that's partial to any, any people that go to see something live. And it, to me, that's a small sect of society. It's, I kind of view that there's two kinds of people. There's, there's creators and destroyers and people that can't create generally want to destroy. And what I mean by that is they're the people that are going to go and look for mistakes and things like that. And they're generally the people that can't do it. So, <laughs> well, that's that's a that's a great way of looking at it. Real quick on Cirque du Soleil, uh, is there was there ever a challenge because the most of the lyrics that they have are not in English; they're not even real words; they're just made up uh, gibberish. Mm-hmm. Is that ever right. a challenge for you when you're working on uh, doing an arrangement for them? Not too much, because uh, honestly, the, the vocal aspects of the, of the pieces, I would not work on that much because. Uh, they were established songs, just like you have songs in a movie. You won't hear an Aerosmith song cut up too much mm-hmm. once it's played in the movie because it's the song and people are going to recognize that. Uh, whereas uh, there's all the transitional music, which, by the way, is about Jesus, 70% of the, of the show anyways. Oh, yeah. You know, going in and out of scenes when uh, actors and, and dancers and gymnasts are coming on and off, off transitioning between between skits. That's a, that's a big part of where I'm, where I'm involved in the arranging part of that. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, the songs themselves are, are, you know, like the love songs and so on are are really well established already. Okay. Well, that's probably why you do more arranging than you do orchestrating on something like that. Sure. I mean, the great part about the great part about Cirque du Soleil is it's just there's a lot of ethnic variety of instruments. Oh, yeah. There's weird instrumentation. So in that sense, that's that's the fun part that I love about it is it's it has a lot of variety that, that you don't get in normal formats. I think that's what a big part of it was for me that made me fall in love with it in the first place. I mean, I, I was uh, visiting Vegas when I lived in Arizona and I was staying at Treasure Island and uh, I thought, you know, uh, maybe this Mystere show would be good. I called my brother. He's like, yeah, I think you'd like it. So I bought a ticket. I went. I was so blown away because I had never heard or seen anything quite like it. And had I gone to the first show instead of the second show that night, I would have walked out, bought a ticket and gone and seen it right away again. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, too. It's like some of the shows uh, and I don't want to step on my own toes here. Um, it's they have to have flow. There's some shows that are just epic in, in that their their pacing is just so magical. You want the show to go on for forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
in terms of the performance itself. And then there's other ones that can have lulls in them, just like any live performance of <laughs> any show. Um, there's very few, of course, because they're so professionally polished. But uh, I find that some of the shows are certainly better from my perspective, um, just because of their of their organic flow of the whole show. Mm-hmm. Same with a great movie, you know. Yeah. You can have a movie got lots of great scenes, but if it doesn't really have a through story and a great narrative carrying all the way through, you're going to get up and down. You're going to get a little bored here and there and lose lose attention and, and so on. So I would agree with that. I would definitely give credit to Circus being one of the companies that generally keeps an eye on their audience. And when things aren't working, they do something to change it. Yeah, they're so they're so professional. I agree. The one thing, the complaint that I typically have with them uh, as just a, a, a patron of their shows is that I often don't know when to clap. It's like they leave the pause in the wrong spot or they'll have you clap right before it ends and then it ends. And you're like, well, I just clapped. Should I clap again? <laughs> you just wait and see what everyone else well, does. Well, yeah, it, it's really funny that you say that because, too, because that could be a cultural thing, too. Like, mm. uh, for example, you, you see shows in Japan. A band will finish, you know, an encore, and the, the audience will just sit there because just the way that they're culturally raised to respond to things can be different too. So even if you see the same Cirque show in five different countries, even the way the respective countries would react to that can be uniquely different too. So it's a very—I've never been told to to focus on those things, but I, I can imagine it's an incredibly hard thing to organize the actual structure of the show. Mm-hmm. When, when things are always changing on you, you know, that's a, that's a really good point, especially for the touring shows, because I remember uh, hearing many interviews with bands that tour around the world. And they talk about going to a place like Japan where, you know, in between the songs, they will just erupt and scream and jump around. But when the song is playing, they will sit there and they will listen to it and they will be quiet. And it's completely different from say an American audience that just screams the whole time and probably misses half yeah. the song. Yeah, I played many a jazz gig where you want to punch somebody in the audience because they're talking over you when you're in the middle of a solo. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I want to ask you a little bit about Riverdance. So was were those uh, projects that you worked on with them, was that more orchestration or arranging? No, I was actually doing guitar work with them. Oh. Uh, and this was one of my first major gigs out of school uh, when I got out of school in Boston, roughly in the early 90s. Um I basically was subbing for the guitar player. They were at Radio City Music Hall. Uh, this was back in 96. Uh, and the main guitar player had some days where he was ill. And I sort of got in just through because I knew him through indirectly for other people. Mm-hmm. And I ended up filming on a few shows. I did reasonably well. And then I, was sort of, I was sort of an alternate guitar player uh, for a couple of those shows there. And then also in Chicago and Boston. Uh, and that's pretty much yeah, I, I was there as a guitar player. Wow. I did not realize that. That must have been interesting, though, as a musician to be a part of something that was so unique. Well, the coolest thing about that is we didn't read anything. Really? Uh, yeah. It was we rehearsed with, with charts if we needed them and get the material down. But once we played the live performance, it was a lot of flow and really like you'd see in an Irish pub mm-hmm. just a bunch of people getting together with their instruments and <laughs> starting off on a reel or some 6-8 thing and starting to go and playing off that so that was a really cool experience in that sense because I don't want to say it was fusion but it was definitely uh, the aspect of being able to feel kind of free wow I would not have expected that yeah 
I didn't I didn't either. Those shows are so precise and structured that there would not be a lot of room for, yeah, you get it, just play what you feel. Yeah. I mean, it was so well rehearsed, though. True. Uh, so so there was it was down to at that point, just like any great classic rock band. I mean, Jethro Tull didn't chart out thick as a brick, and that that was you know two hours worth of music straight, mm-hmm. with as much intricacy as you could possibly have, and you just get to know the music through so well that you're almost on like I don't want to say autopilot because the energy could be different, sure, uh, night in and night out. Um, but that was right at the beginning, and it was pretty spectacular, just the energy. Uh, of being a pl- being in places where people hadn't seen that before, and you know, watching Michael Flatley just kick ass, and, yeah, <laughs> and it was just it was really it was phenomenal because it was it was a new it was a new idiom, just like you know, Circus Slay when they first came out, it was just something completely new, and sometimes those are the real magical things. Those first couple of tours or shows are etched in time because they they had just that intangible extra thing that. The audience was so engaged because they'd never seen something like that before. It's like the first time you and I saw Chick Corea or something. It's like, oh my god, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I there's, there's a whole other level, you know. And even now, when I listen to some of those recordings, I still feel like this isn't this isn't possible. This would have taken a team of a hundred people to make music like this happen, but now it's really just one guy and four other ones. And that's that's the reason I love I love orchestrating and, and composing in film stuff because it really is just a handful of guys and gals sitting on their computers and their sketch paper and, and their little studios and then coming together for these big sessions. Mm-hmm. But I always marvel at having you know hundred people play little dots that one person put down on paper. And it's that's a pretty brilliant thing. Yeah, and it's it's beautiful because they're taking now what's on paper and bringing out the emotion and the depth of it that uh, yeah, you can only imagine to a certain extent when you're looking at it on paper. Yeah, even even when we do really nice mock-ups and pretty darn close to sounding realistic, mm-hmm. when you hear it at a session with just, you know, I've worked with the London Symphony once before, and it was just, you just sit there with your jaw on the floor because they'll, they'll do first, second takes of things that you think is going to take them a half an hour to play. They'll do it in a first pass, and you're already going, oh, my God, it's like perfect already almost. Yeah. Usually, like the second or third takes are generally the best on the bigger pieces because it seems to be that they've they've had the run through. So if there's any little discrepancies in the reading of it, they've taken care of that, and then they still have that emotional passion of like when you play something the first time. Mm-hmm. Sort of like some of my best jazz guitar solos were my first takes, you know, because you come you come to it with a clean slate and you got really positive energy and uh, yeah, but the orchestra just it takes it to a whole other level. Even a string quartet can do can. And all of a sudden just you know make it come to life mm-hmm. well that's very true and i've heard a lot of musicians talk about where their sort of breaking point is when they're recording so you know the first take or two might be a warm-up usually the third one is is the one and if you have to go past that then you're starting to overthink things you've lost the emotion or the moment of it and you're like what was it i did on that one take i really liked and you're you're trying to think about it instead of feel it sure. Sure. Well, it's pretty logical, too, when we book the sessions that we plot out which cues are going to be done in which order for various reasons of you know conserving their energy. So, for example, if there's a real heavy brass-oriented pieces, we'll get that done first because we know the guys are going to be you know blowing their blowing their lungs out for, mm-hmm. for hours. Really, let them get those fresh when they're hitting it hard. Um, so, there's a lot of logistics with that. So, depending on the scores. There can be, you know, it's sort of like planning out your set list, if you will. It's, uh, 
that, that really helps to have that. Once that's established, then within that, each, each track or queue that I've generally been affiliated with, I've never seen more than, boy, five takes, six maybe. Mm-hmm. It's usually one to three. Yeah, that and that really does make a lot of sense on the energetic level, the physical level, and the content level. And also, also the ability of the orchestras. I mean, all orchestras are, are wonderful in their own right, but there's some that are literally just, you know, the players here in L.A., London Symphony. I mean, they can just go through some literally the first time, mm-hmm. sight unseen, and almost nail it. Absolutely. Well, since you're so busy, though, going, uh, you know, with all these projects, how often uh, do you get a chance to compose something of your own? Well, uh, I'm always composing. <laughs> I love writing and I, and I honestly do most of my writing in paper, sketch form and theory. Hmm. So that I can do if I go to pick somebody up at the airport and I'm stuck waiting an hour, which I always have to. Uh, I can sit and write a queue and I'm just sitting there and composing in theory. I love to go to the beach, uh, so I can go out and sit at the beach for a couple hours, sketch something out there. So I'm generally always writing something. How often that actually comes to fruition with a group or an actual recording, <laughs> that can be another thing because it's just there's only so many hours in the day. And uh, I'm also a caretaker for a 96-year-old guy here where I live, too. So I'm kind of preoccupied, obviously, looking out for him as well. Sure. Uh, and that's another good reason where being an orchestrator, I'm allowed to kind of work at home. Mm-hmm. primarily so i can do most of my stuff here and be available for, for those circumstances as well i would love to honestly play more fusiony stuff and record and all that but it's just it's just a matter of uh, time uh, i used to do a lot of that 20 years ago and that's i kind of got tired of schlepping around racks and <laughs> yeah. writing all the music and smoozing the club owners to get gigs and yelling at the players for being late and you know um so, <laughs> well, I can say as a as a drummer and as an audio engineer, I've slept my share of gear over the years, and uh, I'm right there with you. You know, it's funny uh, there, there was a time there was a time back in the '90s I, I literally had two thirty space racks. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it sounded just ridiculously amazing, like playing a three and a half fourteen uh, jet, but it was setting it up, plugging it around, and mm-hmm. you know, it was pretty pretty cumbersome. Well, sure. Well, what's what in your in your view? Now, I love pedals. When I go to the NAMM show, I could spend a day just looking at pedals and pedal boards and pedal configurations. And I'm not a guitar player, so I just think there's probably something wrong with me. But what what's really the key to getting a good guitar sound, good, nice, clean sound? Well, a great person. When you have Steve Morse on, you need to ask him that because he's I learned a lot about the stuff along those lines from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly other great players, but he's he's a master of that. Uh, it's a real combination. Of, I personally feel that it's less is more. The, the the more I've gone through the years, it really is in your hands too. I always teach my guitar students and people that have you know shown some guitar work too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in your hands. I mean, you can hear Mike Stern pick up any guitar, and he's going to sound like Mike Stern. Right. Uh, so much of your tone literally is coming right through the flesh of your fingers. Uh, but certainly with having a great, say, electric tone, you know, you got to have a nice big old badass tube amp. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually using some Line 6 stuff, and I've just got the new Boss Katana, uh, which is a solid-state little combo amp, and that thing is ridiculous. It's it's an amazing amp. It's quiet, too, isn't it? Oh, it's just, it's it's amazing. It's 112. It can be 50 or, excuse me, 20, 50 or 100 watts. It could tear your head off, and it's this little box, and the sound... You can almost it feels and plays like a tone amp or a tube amp. 
Wow. Which I, I've been overwhelmed by because I, I never thought it would be possible. I, I played through some that were close. Um, but, you know, I still have a Soldano. It's, you know, my, my bread and butter beast. Uh, well, slow 100 lead, which is just, you know, it's like playing through a big block Chevy. It's it's <laughs> it, it's, it's unbelievable. Just the, the sound that comes through that. Um, but ultimately, I don't really use too much in pedals. Uh, I have bass guys use Boss stuff now, and I actually just use their multis, their, their GT one hundreds, because uh, you basically have a couple dozen of their best pedal in one. Mm-hmm. You can program it. It's got you know the volume pedal and wah built in. It's got some great models of its own. But there's nothing that really surpasses just playing a nice old Strat, yeah. <laughs> uh, or a half stack Soldano with maybe one or two pedals, and that's it. I I do love the Strat sound, and that's what I grew up on. And uh, if if I could play guitar with any decency, I I can do a rhythm track here and there when I need to. But that's about it. I have a I have a little Fender Squire that's you know sort of a junior Strat, and uh, that's about oh, as, great, man. as good as it gets for me. Now bass playing, I'm getting there. The charm of Fenders is their cheapness. I mean, I've, I've built a couple of my own sort of custom ones now, but uh, they're, they're actually cheaply built guitars. That's the that's the character of them. Mm-hmm. Is the bolt-on neck, and you know, <laughs> they have that. But you know, when you when you get a Strat, you know the sound you're going to get, and it's pretty consistent. You know, depending on what you do to tweak it, but the basic sound is there on every Strat. It's like buying a Peisty cymbal; every one of them is going to sound almost exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, my main two guitars now is I, I built a custom Tele and a custom Strat. The Tele is just remarkable because I can play everything from jazz and that, to obviously country picking, to mm-hmm. crank and rock. It's, it's such a diverse guitar. And the same goes for the Strat. Uh, if I have to take, you know, one guitar to go anywhere in the world to be able to play a bunch of different things, it's going to be a Strat. There you go. Or, or, or a Tele, too. But uh, it's, it, those two guitars, that's they're very versatile. Did you enjoy building your own? Oh yeah, I've always I've always customized my own guitars. Even back in the day, I always rewire them with Seymour Duncan's, and I'll use these tap coils. And you know, I want to try to be able to get this you know variety of sounds I can get out of one instrument as possible. Mm-hmm. The Strat I built, I put stacked humbuckers in it, which I can split, so I can actually have it sound like a Les Paul because it's an eleven pound Strat, which is ridiculous. That's heavy. Yeah, so it's like a Les Paul. So when I have the humbucker setting on, you can it sounds like a damn Les Paul. And then I, then, I, then I could split the humbuckers into single coils, and then I've got the strat tones. That's awesome because then then whatever you need to play, you can find a good sound to match it very quickly. Pretty much so. And you know, over the years, I, I had twenty four guitars at one time, and wow, wow, I had to take care of my mom for a bunch of years, so I had to sell off a bunch of gear to do that. Mm-hmm. And it actually was sort of a blessing because I'm now down just a handful of guitars, and uh, the less is more. <laughs> I've really scaled back. I mean, obviously, as a composer, most of the stuff that I have isn't physical anymore. It's mostly inside the box now, which sure. is, is somebody who who has just moved. I'm extremely grateful for. <laughs> but uh, but no, that's that's great. It's good to have that versatility because you also never know what you might need to record as a player. You know, if if you do some of the recordings of the stuff that you orchestrate, or maybe somebody just says, "Hey, I need a guitar track." Yeah, if it's, if it's something more, I'll probably do here in the next years to follow. We'll probably start engaging a little bit more and uh, uh, soloing on people's projects and playing uh, guitar tracks and bass tracks as well. Yeah, because I I haven't been doing enough of that, and it's, that's a way I can still sort of get my guitar rocks off and yeah, uh, also make a living at it as well. And sessions are always fun. 
Well, they're usually fun, I should say. <laughs> Always is a bit of a stretch. Nowadays, I mean, we can do a project. Uh, I worked on a Celtic metal project a couple years ago, and none of us ever met. Uh, the singer was from Canada. Uh, the drummer and bass player were in Belgium. Uh, the engineer was in Sweden. Wow. And it was mastered in Germany. And I was doing the orchestration work out here. And we put together a pretty, pretty cool uh, cranking orchestral Celtic rock album, heavy rock album. In a matter of a couple of months, and it was, it was a pretty cool thing, but none of us ever met. See, that's the thing I love about the age that we live in is we really can utilize the technology. I mean, you can do a, a band concert with people in five different countries and broadcast it live on Facebook. You couldn't it's do like that. We're talking now. Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, we're in different cities. We're talking over Zoom and uh, and the sound quality is great, by the way. You sound crystal clear. Excellent. Um, I uh, I wanted to ask you, though, before uh, before we move into your sports phase, I wanted to ask you about magnification. Well, that was a blessing. Um, I was, I just moved back to San Diego, my hometown uh, from the East Coast where I've been playing and happened to be dating a gal friend. We were together for a couple of years and I was at a, at a club with her and I just started, I was just getting into film score music, just enjoying film scores and listening to them. And I was talking to her about it and she goes, oh, you see that guy in the band over there? keyboard player he does that kind of stuff and I'm like, oh cool so she introduced me and uh that was larry Gruppe. he actually has done a lot of amazing scores himself mm-hmm. and it was his gig uh he was brought on by yes and i happened to be in the right place at the right time to do some assisting work i was pretty green and i was just there to sort of be uh help out with some of the preparation work running things around but it was a great experience to be able to to hear a live orchestral show, be at the rehearsals, the recording sessions. Uh, yes is the nicest group of guys you'll ever meet. Wow. Um, John Anderson is an absolute sweetheart. I've never met a nicer guy mm-hmm. uh, in all my days of anything. Uh, he literally was, I was just taping parts together at the recording session for the orchestra. And he comes up over my shoulder and says, oh, you're putting the music together, huh? And I, of course, I'd turn over my shoulder like, oh, my God, it's John Anderson. <laughs> uh, I used to see him when I was 11 years old at arena concerts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was just part and parcel. So it was a dream come true to, to meet uh, and much less be a part of, of something that was that cool. Well, I think the the key to the, the story, though, is really that you just put yourself in a position to uh, be able to align yourself with it. I think. So many musicians, because so many of us are introverts, it's really easy to just say, I really want to do this, but I don't want to talk to people. It's, 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 why, it's why I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, there's, there's a big part of you. you got to be where you got to be. Uh, you can have all the skill in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all the chops, but it's, you'll, and that's why a lot, I've seen a lot of musicians bitch and complain about why is this person making so much money over me or professional attributes over me because they're, they're out there. They're putting themselves out there and putting themselves in the spotlight, live performing, taking the risks, you mm-hmm. know, and that's, it's, 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 that's a big part of it. Yeah. You can't, you can't stand along the sidelines and wait for people to just find you on SoundCloud. It's, it just, it, it happens, but it's so rare. And so many, so many people, if they ask you, Hey, can you do this? Even if you can't, you say yes. And you learn how to fucking do that really quick. Exactly. It's 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 all good on this show, but uh, it's kind of like I I look at Shania Twain's story as kind of inspirational. I mean, here she is. She's lost her parents. She's taking care of her siblings. Uh, she's just going out for one night to to take a breather and doing some karaoke in Alaska. 
And Mutt Lang happens to be in the audience and discovers her and, you know, helps her become this big star. But that's like a, a once in a million people story. But people hear stories like that and they're like, well, th- this is going to be my Shania Twain moment. The strangest thing I've no- noticed is the bigger gigs I've gotten have all come, in ab- come about roundabout through some unknown connection to get it. Uh, I got one job on a big film a few years ago back because I created a, a, a composer's blog. I was just putting it out there to put information out to people for free. It wasn't for money or anything like that. I was just trying to get in part of the community. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, a, a large lead orchestra who works with some pretty amazing people saw that and respected that I was doing that for no other reason than I was just trying to be part of the community. He calls me literally out of the blue and asked me if I want to work on a just major film. And I was like, oh, my God. And I was you know, living in Compton at the time, just wow. <laughs> scraping. So it's and that came out of nowhere because I was putting myself out there. I put something out there that was not for me. It was for the benefit of others first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a big part of that, too, is I'm, I'm sort of a firm believer in, you know, what we put out, we get back. Absolutely. I would I would really agree with that. And that's obviously the first stage is putting yourself out there. The second stage is showing up and, and yep. giving it your everything and proving that you're not just a talented musician or orchestrator, but that you're reliable, that you meet or be, or beat timeframes, that you communicate. I mean, you really you're always earning it, but yeah. it's it's really easy once you've earned someone's trust for them to hire you again or refer you to other people. Well, film is a great example of it. It's all relationship based. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the calls that I've gotten in the last three or four years, I've primarily been because I've worked with somebody else that passed on my name to somebody and they already knew that person that I could be reliable and be part of a good team, a good team player. Yeah. Now that makes sense, you know, and it's, it's that kind of consistency because we talked about the deadlines. You don't have time to hire people that aren't going to make it happen. And communication is the biggest part of it, you know, because we, we still work independently, even if we're working uh, as a team to get the session together, we're still also orchestrators and copyists. We're all off in our little rooms. Right. Across city or across the state uh doing our own individual things so we have to be able to be given instructions know that we're going to go do something for two or three days or a week or whatever get back to them later with and everything that they ask for is going to be done just like they wanted it they don't have to worry and follow up with us during that period of time mm-hmm. uh to make sure that's going to happen yeah you have to be able to trust the people that you're hiring for these projects because they are they are not forgiving as far as uh, right? your delivery <laughs> Uh, I want to ask you, too, about because uh, you recently shared some music that you were a part of with me, and I just fell in love with it right away. Let's talk about Shadow Puppets. This is some great fusion. You mean Shadow Prophets. Or Shadow Prophets. I'm sorry. I'm looking at my paper from far away. Uh, That's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, the music is great, though. I love it. Well, I appreciate that. I, that was a, a, mainly a trio that I had for, boy, almost a decade. Uh, it was San Diego based primarily. Uh, I had an incredible drummer. His name is Dave Brown, D.B. Brown. He was from Philadelphia, and he could play anything. Um, as a drop of hat, I mean, he grew up playing General Giant. All these just incredible odd uh, times, things. He could play Latin, just anything. And him and I had met and just really clicked. And I ended up getting a roommate, a German roommate. His name was Ralph Schatz. He's a great bass player. And we, of course, like, Young guys, we basically just got a house so we could play music all around the clock. Mm-hmm. And so we were always just jamming. And uh, we all had the same pace. 
and backgrounds with music. We all could read charts and improvise well over changes and do all that type of thing. And with them, I actually would use hand signals a lot too. We had a sort of a little uh, method of hand signaling each other for modulations and key changes, Mm -hmm. time changes that we could do things really in real time and really create arrangements right on the spot. That's a really nice camaraderie to be able to have as musicians. That, that came about after we played, you know, for a good couple of years together. I would chart out quite a bit of stuff, but mm-hmm. uh, really some of the most fun we had towards the tail end of things was just jamming freeform. We play gigs, literally just set up a dad recorder and just play the gig. And we just sit there and have a couple of beers afterwards and go, oh my God, how do we do that? <laughs> right. uh, now we, now I got to go transcribe that so we can play it again. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I tried to explain uh, fusion to somebody once, and I, I don't know if I did it well. I said something to the effect of fusion is emotion meets the technical, and and that's how it touches you. And I'm sure that was a terrible explanation. No, no, not at all. It's it's Fusion has really got a, a bad rap in a lot of respects. A lot of people have different, just like when people say jazz, I mean, that can cover so many subgenres within jazz fusion to me is basically that it's got the energy and drive of rock and roll in terms of its electric punch mm-hmm. but it has the complexity and improvisational aspects of jazz yeah i like that it's like it's free form that's built around a structure yeah i mean you hear chick reed tunes where every single note is written out like a suite mm-hmm. and then there'll be other ones where yeah there's just a light head some essential changes and then it basically changes every night of the performance. Right. Or, you know, you're going to, we're going to just support you for 16 bars while you solo. And then we're going to come back to this, what would be considered the chorus if, if this were a vocal song. It's so fun because we do, you know, trades where you go from 16s to eights to fours to twos to uh, single beats to even half beats. I mean, you hear the Dixie Dregs will do great old Mm -hmm. tunes like that, where they're calling back and forth and building up the climax of a tune through doing trades through it. So it's a very uh, camaraderie-based uh, form. And no no one instrument shines over another. Yeah. Even though, even though I'm a guitar player, um, you know, I love bass so much too. And drums was always what I wanted to play. Really? Uh, but the parents, yeah. Oh, yeah. The parents basically, uh, I played trumpet for a lot of years when I was a kid. Uh, that was my principal for about 10 years almost. Mm-hmm. School bands and all that good stuff. Uh, and then I, as soon as I picked up a guitar, I went, oh my God, you know, screw this trumpet stuff. Uh, <laughs> I still wish I played it though, because I didn't know I was going to go to jazz school later. Uh, sure. But I, I always, I, I would listen to drums and guitar like crazy and all those old Ma Vishnu records with Billy Cobham. I could still sing all the drum tracks and fills because mm-hmm. I would, so that's just part of my DNA. And, uh, but guitar, my basically parents said, oh, what do you want to play? I said, oh, guitar, drums. Can I play drums? No, guitar sounds good. Uh, <laughs> And I'm, I'm very grateful they decided that because guitar is, uh, no disrespect to drums, I love them. Uh, but guitar is just, to me, I can do everything. If you've got a harmony instrument, you can play any style of music, it's portable. Mm-hmm. It can, I can play solo jazz pieces where I'm the whole thing just like a piano player. I can be a lead player or something. So to me, it's it's the most diverse. And we have the most toys we get to play with, too. And Well, it's portable until you get a 32-space rack. And then it's... Uh... <laughs> Well, that's true. A little less enjoyable, yeah. Absolutely, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying. It's, yeah, it's... and the guitar is nice because there's so many colors, so many different things that you can do with it. That uh, you know, especially with uh, like the synth pa- uh, packs now, where you can basically turn a guitar into a stringed keyboard. Um, but just just 
with the tonality and the different things there's you can create just about anything on a guitar now well that's the thing back when i had that trio uh all the synth and, and keyboard tracks you hear and that were all me on guitar uh and oh. i got really I and I same thing when I did with some stuff with Cirque is you get really good at being able to tastefully intermix that where people don't say, oh, that's synth guitar, mm -hmm. is every time I would use that, I would play as if I was a keyboard player. I mean, I would voice the same as a keyboard player. I wouldn't play guitaristically, uh, you know, with a patch so people could tell I was a guitar player playing. So I really tried to idiomatically sound right. like the actual instrument I was trying to emulate, which helped me as a player, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times by playing, um, uh, say, a string patch, I, I will play through MIDI guitar if I want to just do something in real time more than the keyboard because I'm simulating slides and bends and just subtle nuances of legato mm -hmm. playing that I would not be personally capable of on keyboard, but also just that would be natural as a keyboard player. Yeah. Some string instrument. And there's a lot of things that you could do on a guitar like that. You can't do, it's very rare to find a patch on a keyboard that you can do a reasonable slide like you can on a guitar to, to give it that effect. Obviously, obviously I'm partial to guitar, but you know, for sure. example, we have, say, uh, we can play one C note in five different places. Each string has a different timbre, mm -hmm. a different sonic sound. One I might use for country that's brighter on the second string. There might be one I'll use on the, you know, four string because it's more mellow for a ballad right so that alone we have just a variety of sound not to mention the hand techniques we can do more hand techniques between both hands than any instrument there is and and let's never discount the uh the benefits of a whammy bar or a uh oh, what do you there call you it go. like a wah pedal oh yeah even tap and pick on the fretboard i mean there's just so many you know palm mutes slides glissandos bends mm -hmm. it's 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 a brilliant thing now, when I would write uh, guitar parts on keyboard, I would often send it over to a guitarist and say, is this realistic? Is this something that you could actually play? And well, I had one of them tell me, don't worry about it. Just write what you write and we'll figure out how to play it. And sure. I thought, well, that's not very realistic, though, because I could write some really complex things that you just can't do. Well, it's it's good to do that, though. I mean, it, it, and it's great that you ran them by that way. I do the same with orchestral work. If I'm new to some, you know, instrument over the more or something and i'm not sure what i can do in this range i'll write the part and i'll say i'll send it to somebody that plays that and i'll say is this good it's work mm -hmm. is there anything i need to be aware of so yeah there's idiosyncrasies to every instrument uh, especially with guitars so that's even if they say they don't need it i think it's a wise thing to do yeah i i mean if it's something that i think might be played by somebody someday then yes a lot of times when i'm writing like new age music i know that there's going to be no mental sonic concert so i i can pretty yeah. much just do whatever i want Sure, but, sure. but, you know, like you were saying earlier, you could always uh, say, well, we're just going to alternate this between two players. And if you're orchestrating for Philip Glass, you can pretty much just assume that that's what every line is going to say. Yeah, uh, it's, I'm, I'm not not sound disrespectful to him. Uh, he's never been a big favorite of mine because mm -hmm. uh, to me, it's I shouldn't even get to being critical about music because it's all great in its own right. Uh, but his uh, is kind of like wash, rinse and repeat. Um it's very arpeggiated and ostinato based. Right. Which which can be very um, very beneficial for some movies. What was the one? Kwasu Kansi, that, that movie about, uh, well, this was back, sort of about a futuristic movie, but it was just basically scenes of, of how man was kind of destroying the planet and taking over things. So it was just shots, and his music went incredibly well with it because mm -hmm. it was very pulse oriented through it. So his, his scores really work well, you know, for a solid. Reason. But as, as far as sitting down for me to listen to, 
uh, at least in regards to, to those kind of composers. I'm, I'm much more partial to, you know, Stravinsky's and oh sure, yeah, Shostakovich and, and certainly the great film guys. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely a Beethoven guy myself. But there there are some pieces of his that I just absolutely love, and the rest of it, I'm like, yeah, I kind of feel like I've heard it before. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not lying when I say I could literally go to Desert Island and listen to the fourth and fifth piano concertos on a loop forever. Yeah. I think I think uh, Violin Romance Number no. Two by Beethoven would be one of those pieces for me, uh, and maybe uh, the soundtrack to Gladiator. Yeah, they're just they're perfect form they're perfect forms of music, especially those piano concertos for me are just. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there was um, a film called The Church, which was a low budget horror movie, and uh, it had this one very bizarre death scene in it, and there was a, a piece of music that came up right as that scene was kind of hitting the apex and. I thought, wow, this is really good. And I found out it was this uh, song called Flow. And uh, there was this electronic version of it that uh, they used in the movie. And I really liked it. And then I traced the song back and found out that it was actually a Philip Glass piece. But this particular version for the movie was actually recorded by Keith Emerson. Wow, cool. Which you would not expect on a low budget movie. Yeah, we lost him a few years back here, too. Yeah. You know, what's really sad is I was bound and determined uh, that the year that he passed away, uh, I was bound and determined that year I was going to find a way to meet him at the NAMM show because every time I had tried to meet him before, it was always a, you know, I'll be right back kind of thing. And uh, I never did get to. Uh, I did get to meet Carl Palmer a couple of years ago, which was pretty amazing, but I uh, never did get to meet Keith. Well, I know exactly what you're talking about because Keith Emerson used to live right over the hill for me. Oh, really? <laughs> and, I, and I never... I never, you know, ventured over that way or never tried to and just never thought about it. Oh, that's a bummer. Just follow the patch cords. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's so many stories of musicians like that. I, you know, Oh, for sure. Uh, well, that's I, why I meet everybody, you know. I, I was so determined this year that I was going to make a point of meeting Steve Morris and Glenn Hughes because I didn't want to have that story with anybody else. You know, and a couple of years ago, Alice Cooper. Morris is one of the coolest guys I've ever met. He's just not you know musicianship is par none par excellence but his, his as a person across the board he's just phenomenal well you know i always used to say that there was there would never be a guitar player that made me feel music the way that richie blackmore does but i have to say steve morris has uh really taken a great position in purple and I, the the way that he plays his style i didn't like his sound in the beginning i don't like that sort of screechy guitar sound that he had for a while but I love his playing. I love his writing and, and the feel of what he does. I was, I was even listening to Come Taste the Band yesterday with Tommy Boland. Oh, yeah. Great That's, album. I love Tommy Boland. He's, I was kind of mourning about him. Every once in a while, those, those players that passed away too early, yeah. uh, every once in a while I have a day and I'm just having a Belgian beer and sitting down. And I'll think about one of those guys and pull out some old albums by them. But that was one of the ones I, I love that album. I think he was definitely Jimi Hendrix a decade after Hendrix. You know, he just he did so much in so little time, died very young of of a drug overdose. But he was one of those guys that if he had gone on to uh, even a couple more projects, everything he would have done, I think, would have would have been something of note. That that playing on Billy Cobb's Spectrum, he was 21. And Jeff Beck, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of people don't know this, is Jeff Beck was inspired to create Wired and blow by blow and go that direction based on Tommy Bullen's performance on Spectrum. I didn't know that. Did you know yeah, that Spectrum was, was the reason he got the job in Deep Purple? I was certainly, I was certainly, uh, Alphonse Mazzone hired him too for that reason. That would be mm-hmm. no doubt. That was heavy, but that does, who who would think we might not have wired if it wasn't for Tommy Bullen. Yeah. <laughs> and a great voice on top of that. He was a very talented oh, singer. 
everything. Yeah, what a it, shame. His solo album, if you've never heard, it's his first solo album teaser. I have, it's, yeah. It, it, it's unbelievable. It's got all Narada Michael Walden and David Sanborn and boys, everybody's who's who. Jeff Picaro was on that. That's right. Uh, he was. Yeah. And and a lot of, now Jeff Picaro, uh, for people that don't know, he was the drummer for Toto, but he also was the drummer for Michael Jackson. Yep. And lots of great stuff. Larry Carlton, all those originals. So but even before he was done with Toto, He'd yeah. done so much amazing studio playing on albums. Oh yeah, he was he was a mega studio musician and it just worked on so many. But that's where it goes back to kind of the credits and things like that. Is that uh, you know a lot of people don't know who played on these masterful recordings that they like. How many times have you heard Billy Jean? <laughs> and uh, for the longest time, I didn't know that that was Jeff Picaro playing drums. And but when you when you sit down and you're like, once you know and you listen to what a rock solid metronome that guy was, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. And I'm I'm a firm believer that Quincy Jones made Michael Jackson um, because those albums that he produced and arranged, uh, you know, bad and that were thriller. He was the guy that really I think took Michael's musical identity and put it to another level. Yeah, uh, he, he still he's obviously a genius, gets tons of credit, but I don't think he gets enough credit for that because Michael, as brilliant as he was as a performer, that that album was you know who would think to put. Van Halen on a solo on a tune and just the mix of all he, he was responsible for contracting all the players. Mm -hmm. So, so responsible for, for the, the, the meat of that. Well, before I ask you about hockey, since we're talking about this, I got to tell you a quick story. Uh, the very first year that I was at NAM, um, I was getting ready to go to the, uh, the big scorecast dinner. There was about an hour left before NAM was closing. And I wanted to go and ask uh, the people at Korg a question and uh, Korg also does like uh, uh, the amp, some uh, uh, studio speakers and stuff. And there was a uh, private room that Korg was in. And uh, so I, I went in there and I'm just kind of waiting in for my turn. They're they're talking to somebody who was demoing some of the speakers or trying them out. And uh, I'm waiting and I'm waiting and a couple of kids come in and they're a little bit rowdy and they get kicked out. And one of the uh, staff comes over to me and I said, hey, if you, you know, if you're like doing something, you need me to leave, I, I'll come back tomorrow. And they're like, no, 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 you're being cool. So just stay. So I'm listening to this guy talk. I have no idea who he is, but I can tell that he's someone that they're all kind of in awe of. So I'm just going to I'm just going to stand back and monitor all of this, you know, no pun intended. Oh, sure. And so the, the, you know, they finished talking to him. He, he's going to, they're going to send him a set of these speakers to demo in his own studio or whatever. And they're like $800 speakers, you know, each. And right. uh, so after, after this all settles down and the guy leaves the, the, you know, the attendant comes back up to me, he goes, thanks for, you know, thanks for hanging out and being cool and being patient. What can I do for you? And I go, well, before I ask you my question, can you tell me who that was? Because uh, at NAM, you know, there's so many people that are studio musicians. You don't, you're not going to know who they are when you see them. Oh yeah, that's. It, it turns out he was Michael Jackson's piano player <laughs> on all those albums, Thriller and Bad, and all of that. And I'm like, oh, that's okay. the great part. Of it. That's the great part of NAM is just walking through. You just see so much brilliance and. Oh yeah, and you don't even I was know. More, I always marvel at the young players now too. I just go by some some to piano booth and just see some little kid just tearing it up, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, 
it, it can be a little overwhelming, as you know, but it's 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 a cool thing, too. Well, it's stimulation overkill. I mean, just between the lights and then the audio and then everybody demoing thing and then announcements and you know drawings and whatever celebrity sightings. It's just there's so much stimulation to your eyes and your brain and your ears. Uh, if you don't find a way to deal with that fairly quickly, you're not going to last. Yeah, we got to hook up on one of the Scorecast dinners. I used to go to those the first couple of years. Yeah. I haven't been in a few years, but yeah, maybe next time around we'll we'll meet up there. Well, we were going to try and hook up this year. I remember at Nam, and then things got a little crazy for both of us. You know how it goes. Yeah, you get, you get ten friends coming in town, all wanting to meet at the same time, and. Well, that's the beauty of it is that's the one time you do get to see people because we have friends that are musicians or people that are are maybe they make the sounds or the strings or whatever from all over the world. And Absolutely. NAM is the only time that you get to connect with them. So it's like you have four days and that's it. Yeah, it was that Celtic Metal Project I was mentioning. I, I finally met the guitar player and that's where I met him at, oh. at NAM. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> that's so cool. Well, I got to I got to ask you. So on top of all of these things that you've done you play hockey. I've been playing hockey a long time. Yeah, you have. Uh, uh, pretty much between music and sports were my things. Um, there was a, a long period of time I was really thinking about professional sports. I was a good baseball pitcher. and uh, But hockey to me was just always the epitome. It was sort of the jazz of sports. Mm-hmm. You've watched it change a lot over the years. For the better, honestly. it's uh, It's gotten faster and more just amazing athleticism. Uh, the cleanup aspects of the game, they've got more concussion protocol, and it's it's, a, it's really well run. What do you think? Uh, what do you think they're going to do now since they weren't able to actually officially have a Stanley Cup champion this year? I think it's going to be a wash this year because who knows what it's going to be like. We still we still don't know when we're going to be out of the water with this stuff. So yeah. uh, I would I would think by now because right now the Stanley Cups will be in their finals at this point of right. the year right now. So it's it's. I would think it would be a wash because it's they can't rearrange the whole seasons for the whole future of years. So they, they really have to let a whole year go by, at least in my opinion. And it really wouldn't be fair to just say, okay, we'll start the playoffs based on where the season stopped. Like whatever tier, wherever you ended up, that's going to be your spot. And a joke I had amongst my hockey friends is I'm a big Philadelphia Flyers fan and Boston Bruins fan, but the Flyers were having their best year in 15 years and climbing the league and almost one of the best teams in the league. And that's all going to be for naught now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because yeah. people always make fun of them. Like, oh, they finally have a good year. And of course we have a pandemic. <laughs> right. I had, I had a friend <laughs> who Philadelphia was, for you. <laughs> I had a friend who was in a play about the, uh, about a virus and uh, their, their, their play about the virus was shut down by a virus. Yep. Life imitates art, right? <laughs> you're a, you're a forward, right? Uh, mainly a center and, and winger. Yeah. But center was my primary position. Okay. What was there? Uh, was there like I when I played when I was a kid, I was a goalie. And it kind of makes sense because I was a goalie. I was a drummer, film composer, like all the background support. Well, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because to me, there's a lot of parallels between music and, and playing hockey. Uh, it's, you know, same as orchestrating. I mean, every player has a different role on the ice. They've all got to work together in their own aspects and individual, but also as a team and Kind of, there's, there's kind of a framework that we have to play in, but yet there's a lot of improvisation within that framework. Yeah, uh, that's why I always liked it too. Because there's, I played football for a bunch of years, but I really got tired of that because it was, uh, you know, I tackle a guy and six of my own guys would fall on me. It was just like, <laughs> yeah. you know, just, you know, it was, the the odds of getting racked up and hurt really bad it was just too phenomenal and it was too yeah. slow. I mean, in hockey, mm-hmm. we can chase players on the fly. 
you know, you have sudden death overtime. There's just so many, I could go on for hours about hockey, the dynamic of it. Oh, yeah. Well, one thing that really amazes me about the sport now is watching how fast the game is. And I would not, I w- it would have been hard for me to be a goalie in the 80s, but watching how the game is now, I don't know how they ever see anything coming at them. Yeah, it's 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 scary good. I, I coach periodically, and I've seen little 10-year-old kids that you know have some good formal coaching that skate like I skated when I was 20. Mm. You know, it's unbelievable. Just their core balance points or edge work. It's just it's scary how good they are. They, they, have, they actually have exercise and workout off-ice regiments, and they're like 10, 11, 12 years old. Wow. Uh, parents are putting out second mortgages on the house to finance their hockey careers, and and so it's, it's there's some amazing talent coming out nowadays. And that just kind of makes me wonder how much more crazy it's going to get. I mean, I watch these guys. They're standing there waiting for a puck coming at them at 90 miles an hour to hit it in midair and deflect it away from the trajectory it's on, but still go in the net. I've seen some people do some amazing deflections, and that's the one thing I'm like, I really don't get how they have the coordination. That, that was that was my forte as a center. Is we'd win the faceoffs and get to the front of the net, and the shots would come from the point. And uh, either I put my big butt in the goalie's face, or you know, tip it coming down, coming in through there. And yeah, it's a lot of a lot of fun. But it seems like it's not luck. I mean, it seems like it's a real skill to oh, be able to nice. do that. But you're so in the moment. Yeah, I've literally played every sport pretty much. I was a fullback in soccer for a bunch of years, and baseball was my primary for many years. That was the one if I was going to go so-called professional or shoot at, that would have been baseball. Uh, but hockey encompasses more athleticism from every aspect of the being. you got to skate to even play the game. It's got the eye-hand coordination of baseball. Uh, it's got the hitting of football. Mm-hmm. You, the conditioning and the, and the cardiovascular is part of none because you know you're going full speed all the time right and it's a collision sport it's not a contact sport you're hitting people going 25 30 miles an hour mm-hmm. uh so it's 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 pretty amazing it's it's got to be the highest endurance sport i would think from a physical perspective absolutely i've lost 15 pounds in a game before in one game in one game you go to like double triple overtime game oh yeah you know, you're just so dehydrated. You're literally just muscles are fibrillating. And because, <laughs> you know, I have a lot of water weight. It wasn't like I'm not losing muscle mass, but sure. if I went in and drink and carry a lot of water, you know, you lose 10 to 15 pounds. That was very rare, of course, but, you know, yeah. play a really competitive game. And I'm a big guy. So if you're around the corner, you're just pushing another guy your size back and forth. It's like a wrestling match, too, which is can just wear you out, mm-hmm. much less with the skating, just, you know, jockeying for space somewhere right and it's it's there's so much coordination because the game moves so fast you really have to know where your all of your teammates are what they're doing where all the opponents are and it's constantly moving so it's really it's just got to be tough to keep track of everything well that's the jazz part of it though too because you you within that you what seems like chaos to the observer that's never seen it before it's the same way they look at jazz the first time they hear it Mm -hmm. but once you know if there's form and structure, there's times where people are trading stuff, being supportive or being the lead. There's a lot more organizational stuff going on that may appear to it in terms of the flow. Sure. Well, let me ask you this, because I've always found this interesting. You, By the time that you get to say to be in the NHL, you've been playing hockey for at least a good 10, 15 years. And yeah. most of that time, I would imagine, has been spent on teams 
when teams go through phases, like, uh, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s in Detroit, the Red Wings, they couldn't sell tickets for 10 bucks a piece. And we called them the Dead Wings. Yes. Remember, remember oh, yeah. The <laughs> but then then they went on to win, you know, several Stanley Cup championships when Iserman was was uh, oh, there. Yeah. And and then and now they're back to like, you know, maybe we'll win one game out of 10 if we're lucky. How is it that that you can go so long understanding how a sport works, but not be able to at least win somewhat consistently? Well, it's 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 teamwork. You know, that's that's set apart as much as it seems like an individual kind of sport. It's consistency. And plus, the hockey has to play 80 plus games a season compared to football. Uh, so you're playing three or four games a week, plus travel and practices. Uh, so even the best teams, you know, they're going to hit slumps where they lose 10 in a row here and there. And it's it's the ones that have great coaching and great leadership on the team, great captains and, and more experienced players that can step it up and kick some butt and <laughs> kind of get people in line to, to play consistently throughout. That's why I've always loved the Boston Bruins. They're, they're my favorite team because no matter what, they're always sort of in the hunt. Mm-hmm. Even when they're completely beat up at the beginning of the year, people say, oh, they don't even have a shot this year. They're, here they are. They were the best team in the league before the pandemic. And they weren't even predicted, to, you know, they were in a rebuilding phase as far as people were saying. Mm-hmm. But they just found a way to plug players in the right way. Dare I say the Patriots do it in football, you know? Right, <laughs> they, yeah. Year after year, they can lose three or four main players and just still be in the same place at the end of the season. Are they still playing at the Gardens? Uh, oh, the Boston Garden? No, that's been gone for a for, while. Well, I used to go see the Boston Garden games when I was in school there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's been gone a while since oh. the big day. I've been back to Boston for a long, long time. It's It's really changed. Yeah, same for me for Detroit. And I know that they're not playing at Joe Lewis Arena anymore. I think last year or the year before, they just got a, a whole new stadium. I think Joe Lewis was, was last year was his last last uh, season. And it's weird to me. That's another thing that's kind of weird to me is they're, you know, they spend how many millions or billions even on a, on a new stadium and the team's not winning right now. It's like you're not going to generate. People aren't going to go. And the city's really hurting. Yeah. It just seems like such an odd thing to me. I used to love those Detroit teams in the 90s. I used to play with Chris Chelios in the summers. Oh, really? Uh, down in San Diego because his family's from there and they have a restaurant down there. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I used to I'd have, have him come in as a 40 year old. He looked like he was chiseled out of granite. And <laughs> that's, when, that's when he was on the wings in like 96, 97. Yeah. Uh, those teams with Fedorov and all those Russians are just ridiculously amazing. Yeah, they they were unstoppable at the at that time. It was such a great time and for for that, Detroit. That was probably team. literally one of the best teams ever assembled. You know, it's funny the the Red Wings seem to have such a huge following uh, from people all over the country or even all over the world. Uh, oh, when I went to the Kings game out here, yeah, when I went to the Kings and, and Wings out here, half the crowd was had uh, Red Wings jerseys on. Oh wow! Here in LA, it was great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and same for Boston and Philly. It's kind of kind of those old. Old original sixteen, six and eight teams. They they have a huge following. Mm. I uh, I don't really get to uh, you know the tickets out here for the the Vegas Golden Knights are just ridiculously expensive, yeah. and um, I haven't gone to any games since they've been here. But uh, I do watch the uh, the Red Wings condensed games on YouTube. They'll do, do like uh, just like the highlights of the game and stuff. Yeah, me too. That's, that's how I catch up every day. I'd, I'd, you can watch like. 
five or six games that are all like 12 minutes they can dance all the highlights yeah they're great yeah it is but you don't you don't get any of the buildup of it you know you're you don't have any of the anticipation there's there's none of the excitement really you're just like oh okay that happened oh okay that happened and well, it's like every, every time the playoffs come around all my friends and hockey buddies we're, we all have a little saying oh we're gonna go in the closet for a month don't, don't contact me because we all go watch i literally watch two or three games a day yeah and just watch them around the clock and <laughs> that's for us you know uh hockey nazis <laughs> right so i have i have one more hockey question i don't know that you'll be sure. able to answer this but i'm curious to get your thoughts on it so i get the uh the adrenaline the tension and everything that goes on between the players i understand why players fight what i don't understand is why goalies fight they have they're they're if if everybody on the ice, all the other 10 players are fighting, there's always that skating towards the blue line. Are we going to do this? Are we not going to do it? But right. they really don't have a beef with each other. It's like they just have the angst built up from watching everyone else fight. Well, the first thing uh, I should clear up about fighting, which most people don't realize with hockey, they they think fighting on the, on the outside. It's just, you know, guys being testosterone filled and macho and uh, just trying to, you know, bullies and all that it's the exact opposite of that it's actually a very noble thing i'm not saying people should fight but people got to realize that when hockey players are skating and playing against each other they're carrying a weapon right and they're going 20 30 miles an hour and if the referees aren't calling the game properly I mean they're not calling penalties when they're absolutely need to be called mm-hmm. you know for example if somebody sticks one of my little guys with the hits with a stick really flagrantly and the ref doesn't call a penalty on them well, somebody's got to let that player know this shit isn't going to fly. Right. So a big guy like me is going to come over and remind him, mm-hmm. <laughs> generally in a nice way to begin with, and a bump in the chest or whatever. Uh, but when fights usually come, it's because of that. It's because somebody's overstepping the bounds within the guidelines of the game. The refs aren't taking control of the game and letting that go- happen. And then basically the, pl- the players have to police themselves. Right. And it's, it's, you know, like I said, when you're, when you have metal on your feet, you're skating 23 miles an hour, you're hitting hard people hard. And, and especially the stick is the worst one. Cause I, I can tell you horror stories about how many times I've been with a stick in funny places. Oh, uh, I can, I won't even guess. Yeah. yeah. Cause you can, you can get away with that and without people even seeing it. And so it's, and it's better nowadays. I mean, back in the sixties and seventies, it was just absolutely brutal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, that's a bit, that's why fighting just in general happens at all is because the players have to self-regulate right uh it's very rare when there's just a, an outright and there's also the energy aspect of it too if a team like say the red wings this year is playing really bad and just you know really lackadaisical and they have no energy if one of their players you know decides to take on the tough guy for the other team and beats him up or you know makes a point that he's going to make something happen it brings up the team's energy level mm-hmm. uh that's another aspect that happens in fighting. It's, you know, it's not something that I necessarily advocate. Uh, but when you're out there, it's, you're sort of in battle, to be honest. Uh, it's easy for people to criticize war unless they're in war. You know? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. It's, it's always easy to judge things that you don't have experience in. It, it, it's so much better uh, controlled now. It's mm-hmm. players rarely fight. And if they do, it's, it's generally for a very viable reason. And it's generally very noble. If I'm in a bar and somebody's picking on a little girl or a woman, you know, I'm going to defend her, even if I don't know her. It's right. just, you know, the 
right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So it's that, there's that aspect of hockey that uh, I think really gets a, a bad name. Uh, it's not like the movie Slapshot or anything like that. It's, oh yeah, no, no. Uh, it's <laughs> not, a great not movie, even. by the way. But yeah, uh, I, I didn't realize until a couple of years ago that they had made a couple more of them, and they were they tried. I, yeah, I yeah. you're not going to like most sequels, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's classic. Yeah. And, you know, and I I do miss um, being able to enjoy it. I don't as much after, you know, so many lockouts. I kind of I know it's only a certain number of players that cause things like that. But after a while, I'm kind of like, you know, you get paid a lot of money to do something that you love doing. Sure. And I think about all the people that, uh, you know, didn't find that connection to their dreams and, and have to spend their life doing things that they hate just to scrape by. And yeah, I, it, I'm a little more prejudiced against basketball for those reasons. Really? Honestly, the, the ones that have happened in hockey, the lockouts were basically that they wanted a revenue share of the ownership for the players association, which means that they're, they're doing it for the benefit of every single player. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it wasn't individual players sitting out. Um, that's usually how things are spun by the owners and the big money guys yeah. to tarnish it. You know, it's just like politicians do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a little bit more respectful towards the hockey ones. I don't think it's a great thing when it happens, which it hasn't happened in a while. Uh, but it's, uh, there's, there's a lot less egos in hockey. It's hockey players don't bitch and whine about stuff. We, you know, people, guys play with broken legs and <laughs> it's not like basketball or soccer, you know, soccer guy gets touched and he actually gets shot. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, that's a, that's a risky sport right there. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there was a point where I, I just kind of felt like, you know, growing up watching guys like Jim Schoenfeld for the Red Wings, who even though sure. they were down four goals and there were only 10 minutes left, he would still slide across the ice with no helmet trying to block a shot because he wanted yeah. to give them every possible chance to win the game. And and now when I see people do that, I kind of feel like I do about Hollywood. I'm like, you're doing it for your own reason. Like I see a dollar sign pop up out of your head, like in a video game, you know, or like your publicist told you to do that. And that's why you're doing it. You don't really feel that way. And I, I've definitely become tainted to, to a lot of things in the world because of that kind of thing. Well, I got to agree to disagree because I, I think you need to watch some good playoff hockey because uh, the Stanley Cups comes around. It's 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 goes to a whole other level of self-sacrifice. And that's true. You know, the St. Louis Blues last year were a phenomenal story. Even Vegas, I mean, the year before, it's just brilliant. That's, that was such an epic story. Yeah, I, I as First I came to go to the Stanley Cup finals, that's never been done anytime, anywhere in any sport. So yeah, that was pretty amazing. Brilliant. And I mean, it's it's not like they were a, a rookie team, but they hadn't really built that camaraderie together yet. So that that was pretty spectacular. Well, they had that chemistry of, of that they were all disbanded from other teams. Right. So like, if you throw a bunch of people sort of unwanted away and they get together, they're going to be pretty formidable force. And it was, that was a really great story. I really loved seeing that. I rooted for them the whole playoffs. Yeah, they came, they came as close as they could. I'll give them that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I wanted to see now with your your you have a very unique uh, set of skills and experiences if people want to get into uh, doing orchestration, let's say, uh, what kind of advice would you give them as far as a, a career path or, uh, you know, what they should focus on to really get good at that? Well, I think it's like any specialized skill. You want to get around people that are already doing it. Uh, 
preferably one or two models of people that you already like their work and you may want to head in that direction mm -hmm. stylistically and getting in touch with them. Uh, whether that means writing nice, I used to always write nice letters to people. I still do. Uh, I'm not a big believer in, uh, I'm a believer that if you write a really nice handwritten letter, well-written, edited, you're going to get a response. Mm -hmm. uh, people still love that in the state of technology. It's, it means a lot. So I, I, I try to reach out and get a hold of people, uh, be in a community, uh, where you can sort of put yourself out there that you want to be a part of it and you want to give first. That will generally open more doors for you because people will want to they'll appreciate you have a good heart and a good spirit about it. And they'll be more inclined to want to teach you or show you stuff. Uh, I'm still learning all the time. <laughs> it, it never ends. I, I get around people with 10 years more experience than me or even more and just marvel how fast they are and streamline what they do. So I, don't, I think we're always in any profession like that. We have a, we have a, a learning curve that's always going on. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to know your chops too. I mean, yeah. it's, you got to spend a lot of time, uh, I didn't learn most of my orchestration through formal study, honestly, through through uh, my college and music school days. Uh, I basically just deconstructed and back-engineered amazing scores mm -hmm. from all the masters. John Williams, I was able to get a lot of uh, actual concession scores and then just deconstruct those and you, you learn the language. And orchestrating is, to me, the most um, demanding because mm -hmm. you're dealing with the most mathematical possibilities of things you can do right and combinations plus you have to achieve emotion and all that with it as well uh we have more rules uh in a sense because you have to know the range of all the instruments the sweet spots mm -hmm. how they work in combinations or triplets together trip you know three groupings and such mm -hmm. uh, so much of it is just it's really getting around somebody that knows it and does it and and apprenticing with them I think is your best bet. Certainly there's a lot of great schools. So, I mean, if you go to Berkeley or um, USC and UCLA have wonderful programs out here. Uh, certainly there's never say anything bad about schooling, formal orchestration, of course. Um, I personally learned it more through root. I already had a background in degrees in music. Uh, so for me, I already had the vernacular, of sort of the formal theory and harmony stuff, which allowed me to then really specifically just look at great music and know how to analyze it thoroughly that allowed me to do it uh, but i really didn't um start pursuing it more seriously until i met larry Gupe, the gentleman i mentioned before and watched how he worked and some of the people he worked with and started talking and cohabitating with them a little bit mm -hmm. and just it's and i always try to get around people that know a lot more than me of course that's always an important thing too oh absolutely and I, I would add to that and say that when you do connect with somebody, um, don't just send them your Facebook band page and say you not and not even say anything. Just send them an invite to that. Like treat people like human beings. Yeah, that's the last thing to do. Yeah. But they're they're just immediately going to go. Um, you can't even say hello to me first. You just want me to yeah. listen to your stuff, take time out of my busy day and just listen to you. And I always try to appeal to people on a personal level about other things they do. So for you, example, talking to me about hockey is a wonderful thing because mm -hmm. that's a big part of my personality and the big part of who I am as a person. Uh, so if I am aspiring to want to meet a composer or something, I find out, oh, he loves to fly or he does this or that. You know, my parents were pilots. So I would, I would try to maybe communicate with a little bit more on those levels. Right. Yeah. Uh, as, as, you know, like I said, like as a human to be even with things and 
Um, and if you come from an attitude of my experience of wanting to give what you could offer them first, mm-hmm. with not even mentioning, you know, what can I get out of this? You'll do well. Yeah. Or you'll, you'll at least meet the right people that will appreciate that and get you in the doors. Because mm-hmm. uh, people can read you like a book in any profession that when they can sense that you're out for your own game. As long as they're not reading me like a Stephen King book, I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> I don't well, know that that hasn't happened. <laughs> that's, it's, it's true for all of us. So, but you, you know it. It's, when you meet the right person, it's, it's pretty natural. Yeah. And, and you, you can tell. You, get a, you, you have a, a minute of that sort of standoffish, why are they contacting me? What do they want? And then you can sort out pretty quickly who's genuine and who's not. And I, and I still stay in touch with a lot of people that I've worked with intermittently over the years. Mm-hmm. I don't see them all the time, but I'll still send them a nice little Christmas card. Yeah. Remember that their boy played Little League. Oh, how's he doing? And so on. So it may seem a little funny. It's really not. I'm just trying to stay in touch respectfully, mm-hmm. even if it's from a distance. So I, I try to keep my bridges <laughs> there, uh, whether they come to fruition. Because for me personally, we're always looking for the next gig. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And, and we all know that, but we can all do it respectfully. And, you know, you're, if, if people like what you do and they like you, they're going to recommend you. And I think it, it's, it's being in an area for long enough, too, that uh, reputation, I guess, is part of it as well. Oh, sure. And your and your work history, obviously, if somebody, you know, they they're just figuring out who you are and they look at your resume and they see that you've worked with Yes and you've worked with Cirque du Soleil, that's going to just automatically set a level of, okay, now I know where he's at. Well, I, I think that's it. It's, it's, definitely, it's definitely having a professional persona mm-hmm. to us. Though. Even when I go out around town, I still dress nice. Even if I'm just going out for a coffee, I'll still put on a nice silk shirt because mm-hmm. I never know who I'm going to meet. <laughs> that's very, especially where you're at. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, you just never know. And it's, it's not that I think it should be that way, but it's part of the game too. Yeah. Uh, it's, looking appropriate for where you want sort of dressing like where what you want to be like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah. But, but you'll also set a standard for yourself too, because the, the longer that you do that, that just becomes a part of your personality and that's just yeah, what you do point, without good thinking. Good point. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, man, I can't thank you enough, Brent, for spending some time with me. I, we've been looking forward to doing this for a while and I'm really glad we made it happen. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great. Thank you, my friend. It was a blessing. Yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, definitely, you know, best of luck to you. I'm usually behind the scenes all the time. So it's nice to be able to, to talk. Well, that's <laughs> that's the thing. And, and that's what I really want to do with this show is not just interview the people that everyone knows, but the people that help make things happen, you know, and it's, it's I've been so lucky that uh, you because know, a lot of those people are shy and they're like, I don't think I'd be a good guest. And like we're just going to have a conversation. Yeah, sure. That's, you know, it was. Now, I, I will have the link to your musical work uh, in the show notes so people can enjoy that, especially sure. uh, the Shadow Prophets. I just love that stuff. But I'm, a, I'm you know, I love fusion. That's a big thing for me. And uh, really grateful that you shared that with me. And maybe I'll, go ahead and I'll, I'll send you a couple other things in the interim and until you post. And, um, you know, you can kind of use your discretion what you want to put up. I'll put it all up. You know, just awesome. I mean, what I what I might find great or not great doesn't necessarily, you know, depict anyone else's taste. So, yeah, let's uh, let's put it all there. Then people can check it out and find what uh, suits them the best. And we definitely got to hook up next Nam. Yes. Oh, that's a done deal. And I, I fully believe that whatever, you know, we're, we're looking at what, eight months away from that now. 
That'll go by pretty quick. I'm fully, I, it will, but I fully believe that whatever the hell we're doing right now will be long over by the time that Nam comes around. Yeah. Humanity has survived worse. It has. It, it has. That's inspiring right there. Yeah. Well, thank you, my friend, for coming on the show. We will stay in touch and, and talk again soon. But uh, man, it's been great. Thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate it. Take care, my friend. Take care, buddy. See ya. See ya. Lots of great stuff in that interview. And, and again, I have to say the whole hockey thing, that's on me. That is completely on me. The way that I see things, um, you know, I, I see something one too many times and it just kind of ruins it for me. Uh, it's still a great sport. I still uh, admire the people that go out there and put themselves on the line to do it. It's not something I could do. I wanted to be a goalie anyway. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, it's it's not for everyone. And I realize that. And, you know, you see enough things that turn you off to something and it's really kind of hard to go back into it with uh, excitement. Maybe one day I'll return to uh, enjoying it on a bigger level. I don't know. We'll see. It's also a time eater for me. And I don't have a lot of that. But thank you guys for joining me for another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I will be back next week with another very special episode. And I hope to hear from you guys. Write me at scott at scotthaskin.com. Cheers. Cheers.